Welcome back to episode number 120 of the MP Dude. This is Jeff, the MP Dude, giving nurse practitioners a voice. That's everyone's voice that's listening, so please use me as your mouthpiece. Send me emails, send me questions, concerns through Facebook. I don't care how you get to me, but get to me. Let me know what's bugging you. Best way to get me is through email, jeff at the npdude.com. Sorry, my defrogger's going. Um, that's probably the best way to get me is through email. Now it's going again. Jeez, oh, Pete, I can't control this thing. Let's bump it down. There we go. Let's see if that worked. The, um, the the other way you can get me is through Facebook. You can get me through the NP Dude. You can PM me through that. Or you can PM me directly uh, just through Jeff Powers. That's fine, too. The um, We're still relatively stagnant. i got a couple more people on the Facebook page that are liking the show. And again, I'm not sure Facebook is the best measure of things. I still have a pretty constant download on my website. Um, even if I'm silent for a couple weeks, um, or just putting one show out a week, which isn't my normal. Usually I do two-ish. Um, and it's been kind of slow, but going through iTunes and stuff, if you guys are listening, just send me a, a PM or an email saying, hey, I'm listening out here. Just give me a heads up. Um, the best way to help support the show, you guys know how, right? Share the show. Tell your friends. Tell everybody you know that this is uh, worth listening to. You're getting some good information. I got a couple good contract ones today you guys might want to stay tuned for. The, um, I think we're at 22.59. I don't know. It's in the high 50s. We're still just kind of snail's pace on Facebook. But there, there's like 10,000 people on the Facebook group. I can't imagine that most people wouldn't want to support this show in some form or fashion. They're going to get something from this. At least if it's, you know, with two or three episodes of good information, they come back and listen every now and then. This, it's not like you need to listen every day, but man, oh man, I could see where there's some value in this show. Especially today. You guys are going to want to stay tuned. I guarantee it. All right. Other way you can support the show is to use the Amazon affiliate link. Go to my website, thenpdude.com. You click on the banner that says Amazon. It takes you to Amazon. You do the shopping you otherwise would have. It doesn't cost you a single penny or dime more. What it does do, though, is it kicks me a couple percentage of your purchase, and that helps me pay for web hosting. So I appreciate you doing it. It's uh, pretty daily. Everybody's, I'm getting decent number of people on a daily basis that are using the Amazon affiliate link, and I really do appreciate it. I'm almost to goal. I'm not quite there. And there's a lag, too, with Amazon affiliates. So, like, I'm getting paid for, like, July or August or something. It's, like, three-month delay or some ridiculous amount of money. So, um, you know, come springtime, I'll be catching up. But right now, I'm still behind. So I do need you guys to use the Amazon affiliate link if you guys want to help support the show financially. The other way you can do it is to use the donate button if you're so inclined. And you think that today's show is worth a hoot, I would go ahead and click on that little button at the bottom of my website says donate takes you to a paypal donation page you do have to have paypal set up though so go ahead and get that done first everybody in america should have paypal in my opinion i mean you could transfer money to friends just by knowing their email and that they've got a paypal account i mean it's, it's, it makes no sense to me not to have a paypal account you can purchase stuff online i mean it's, it's virtually free now it does cost sometimes a little bit of uh like if you donate it kicks a little bit of percentage to them and that's that's cool i'm okay with it it's a good service and so uh they deserve some money Another way you can support the show is use me for your contract review in Ohio. I can't help you guys. I get probably three emails a day from people in other in other states. And, and I tell people on a continual basis, I can't do it. And I still get people asking me to review their contracts in other states. And I just can't do it. I wish, I wish, I wish I could. But I will be uh, in violation of the bar rules. And I could lose my law license. And I'm not going to do that. It's too valuable to me to, to lose for uh, just reviewing for a couple hundred bucks here or there. 
the um, but in your in Ohio, man, that's a great way to get your uh, contract reviewed. Just email me, Jeff at the NPDude.com. I'll send you back an email with my terms and conditions for the review, with my price and how to pay, and uh, it's super easy. I usually review within. Uh, Usually within 48 hours, I have you, your comments back to you. But it just depends on, you know, if you hit me on a Thursday and I'm busy until Monday, then, then that might wait a little bit. But I'll be up front with you and tell you when I can get to it. So if you need quick turnaround time, it may be a little bit more expensive because I may have to preclude, you know, family stuff and things like that. I'm not talking hundreds. I'm talking, you know, like 25, 50 bucks more. I'm, I'm not going to hurt people. But I do have to get paid for it. I have people that will email me and say, here, review my contract. And then I send them my thing and I don't hear anything back from them. And I think it's because uh, they think I'm just going to do it for free. I'm not going to review your contract for free. I just don't have the time. I just don't. And so you have to pay for it. And I think I'm giving a hell of a service. So that's a great way to support the show as well and support me and, and uh, the work that I'm doing here. The other way is uh, Chronic Intractable t-shirts. I make barely anything on them. But if you guys want a Chronic Intractable t-shirt, go to my Facebook page. You can take a look at uh, the pictures there and see what they look like. It is exactly what they look like. And um, you can even cruise through um, the some of the, the um, Facebook forums and you'll see people wearing the shirts and they, they post it to it. So they're, they're, they're cool. I think they're fun. And uh, But if you want one, I need your name, your address that you want me to ship it to, the size, and I'll uh, place your order. It takes usually a couple weeks for me to get them. And I'm still waiting for a couple more before I hit, hit the go button, but I'll... Uh, send you a link to purchase it's 25 bucks unless it's larger than an extra large then the price goes up by two bucks so 25 buckaroos gets you a cool t-shirt and a great way to support the show too so uh, what do we want to talk about today i got two contract issues i got one that came in last night that um that a chronic intractable and he never said i could use his name so i'm not going to use your name dude um he, but he is a chronic attractable. He's got a shirt. He looks cool in it, and uh, I'm sure he looks cool. And he hasn't sent me a picture yet, dude. You got to send me a picture. Um, but I'm sure you're rocking it. The um, the question is this: How do I know I'm I'm acting within the standard of care when I do certain things? And it, it was specifically about diabetes, but like when to refer. And the uh, the question is: Is when do I refer? For diabetes, and it and it really depends on the patient, and so I can't really just say here's my guidelines. I've I've followed the um, the ADA guidelines. I've that's the one that I've read, and I kind of use it, but I tailor it to to meet the patient. So I'm not going to go through how to treat diabetes today. That's not what I do. There's plenty of shows out there that will teach you how to treat diabetes, and there's probably just as many opinions as there are buttholes on how to treat diabetes, even though there's you know competing guidelines all over the place on when to, to start insulins, whether it's 9 or 10 A1C, or what, you know, whether this is considered a failure of, of metformin or not, you know, and, and so there's a lot of that out there of, of who decides. Is it insurance? Is it is it the provider? Is it the A1Cs that, that dictate? In short, my answer is it depends on the patient, and it depends on their willingness to actually take care of themselves. If they're doing a good job and they're showing an improvement, then they stick with me, and I keep things going, and I'll ratchet to the next level to get their A1Cs to a goal. That's really what it comes down to. The um, when I refer somebody as if they're obviously not involved in their care, and I can't get to them, I can't convince them that they need to take care of themselves. I've offered counseling. I've done everything in my power that I can do to get their A1Cs down. Then what I tell them is I'm going to send you to an endocrinologist. They're going to manage your your sugars, and they're going to probably go up to more insulins than I can use. 
In other words, they'll go like U500, which is like my cutoff point. If I if I max out basal glar or lantus or or any of the long acting insulins, and I get to 70 as my magic number, if I hit 70 and I'm not even close to getting you a goal with sliding scale, you're going to endocrinology, because either you're 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 eating like crap and I can't control it, which it's out of my scope, or it's just you've progressed so far with your diabetes that you need that much insulin. That's that's beyond what I do in family practice. So I kind of max them out on, on late. That's kind of my short and sweet. But um, what I titrate to next and things like that just depends on the patient, what they've tried in the past, what they've got, what their kidney function is. I mean, it just really, really depends. And I try to take a lot of it into consideration. I, and a lot of talking to the patient and getting their buy-in. Is, is the biggest thing for me is whether they believe that this is going to work or not. If they don't believe it's going to work, it doesn't matter how much, you know, I give them, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to take it seriously. So that, that's my, my guideline, I guess I use without getting too deep into it. The, the thing about the standard of care though, is the legal aspect. It's like, okay, where does your standard of care start and stop or where is the limit of your liability when you when when should you refer to endocrinology and when's your liability? Well, it depends, right? So I use the same analysis in my head every time I think about liability. And if you haven't listened yet, and I encourage you to go back and listen to my malpractice malpractice for base, basics for everyone or whatever I called, I can't remember. I think it's malpractice malpractice basics for everyone. Sorry, I'm still exhausted. You can search the search box. It's one of the first episodes in the first 10. And that gives you the, the guidelines that I'm going to go through again today. But today I'm going to apply it to diabetes and, and when you should, you should refer a patient for standard of care issues. And it really depends. So we're going to make a lot of stuff up. Just to give you the kind of the idea and analysis that it's not, as, it's not a cookie cutter. Liability is never a cookie cutter. Every it's every circumstances. Every it has to be analyzed over and over and over again, and you kind of do the best you can of where you feel comfortable. Like okay, I've done the best I can. I can't do anything more. And now it's time to refer, all right? Or whether the patient asks for it and you document it, then you can sw- then you can bump them out. That's up to that's up to you and the patient together. But you put that in your note. So the first thing you do when you analyze anything for liabilities, you ask, do I owe a duty? And this one's the easy one. You, you do. I mean, a duty is, is like you, you almost bump into somebody on the street and you almost owe them a duty. So almost always in tort liability, malpractice liability, and those are not synonyms, but for our case, we're going to say they are. You, you're almost always going to have the duty. It's going to be owed. Okay. They're a client. You absolutely have a duty to this individual. Super easy. Okay? So that's the first one. The second one is is that you breach the standard of care. This is where a lot of times the hat hangs. And so we'll do this one last. So we'll assume that there's a duty and that there's a standard of care that's been breached for malpractice. Okay? So, God damn it, I'm stuck behind a salt truck going 15 miles an hour. Come on, dude. It's not even... It's not even, like, slippery out. This guy's going 15 with his plow down, no snow on the road, ruining the plow. Way to go, government. Beating up equipment for no reason. Wasting salt for no reason. Right, whatever. The, um, the last thing, the, the third prong, is basically all about harm. Is, was the individual harmed? Was there a harm that was caused? And was it caused by you? So it's kind of like a two-prong 
of the three prong. So they were harmed and it was your fault. So you, you misdiagnosed something and they lost a kidney or you misdiagnosed something and they died or you, you diagnosed the wrong thing and you treated with something that caused more problems. And those are all potentials, right? So we have a lot of potential causation with what we do as providers. And the harm has to be measurable. So it can't just be emotional distress. In most states, they have to have a physical manifestation of a harm. So that's when I joke around in the past about this, and I joke, you know, I, I joked around with people all my life as a lawyer. If you get in a car wreck, you pee your pants. There's a physical manifestation. Now you can get emotional distress. I lost my bowel and bladder right there. Ah, now I get emotional distress. But you have to have physical manifestation. So like, oh, my neck hurts. Well, how do you prove that? So sometimes it's difficult from, please don't go straight, please don't go straight, turn. Oh, you son of a bitch. All right, I'm turning. I can't do it. I can't do it. Rolling the dice a little bit. We're going a different way. We're going to go fast, though. All right. So, the um, the physical manifestation of harm, right? No, sorry, I get diverted when I'm in traffic. I get three intersections on my way for an hour and 15-minute drive, and that's one of them. The... Um, a physical manifestation of a harm has to be there, has to be present. So you have, you know, is it kidney damage or GFR gets dropped or, you know, something like that, then, then you're, you're kind of on hook. So the, the, the big argument almost always in court falls within what is the standard of care. And the standard of care is established, and this is, this is the hardest thing for people to understand. It's established by guidelines. It's established by the situation. It's established by experience, training, knowledge. And, it, and it's proven by expert witnesses. So you'll have competing experts. You'll have an expert on your side that says the standard of care is this, which you did. And then the other side's going to say, no, no, no. We have this expert that says the standard of care is that. And so now you have to have the, the, the battle of the expert witnesses. And that's a difficult place to be because you don't know what a jury's going to think. So the idea and practice is, is you, you got to follow the guidelines that are the most well-established. And that will put you into the, um, the, the most conservative setting for limiting your liability. So up-to-date is a great one. Up-to-date is, is an authority, but they, they also... I hope that's not a cop. I don't think it was. It's a great authority, but you have to make sure that, that is this really what the standards are established by maybe, say, the ADA, is the, the American Diabetes Association, the, the be-all, end-all in, in diagnosing and treating diabetes. And, and I think it's probably a pretty good source. Is it um, evidence-based practice where it's multiple new research studies that have, that have been adopted as the the new standard and the ADA just hasn't updated their standards yet well that's questionable too is it for hypertension is it JNC7 JNC8 or is it this new American cardiology crap that just came out so you could see how confusing and conflicting even the medical medical literature is as to which one is the standard of care now what I try to do is this I will measure my potential liability with what damages occur. 
So say, for example, I've got a new diabetic that is 23 years old, that is a type 2, obese, in metabolic syndrome, borderline diabetic. I'm going to go ahead and say that they could ride out for probably five years without treatment before they get any major damage to any more organ system. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't. It, and so that's what I tell them that. I said, look, you know, we caught this early. We've got plenty of time to get this reversed. We can, you know, you're a diabetic. It's never going to go away, but we might get you that it's well managed with diet and exercise alone. And I don't, you know, I don't lie to them and say, oh yeah, you can, you can become a non-diabetic. No, once you're a diabetic, in my view, you are always a diabetic. It's just whether you're managing your diabetes with lifestyle choices versus medication. So I, I tend to, to evaluate what my potential risk is, and then I'll ask them, what, what's your thoughts? Do, you know, if, if you were 60 and I had a, an A1C of 17, you're going on insulin today. My risk is so much higher of, of potential you know, heart, cardiovascular disease and heart disease. Even if, even if they have a heart attack tomorrow, did I put them on insulin today? Would that have caused that? probably not. They were probably too far gone, but that doesn't mean that you wouldn't get sued and have to go fight the causation argument. That's the concern, right? So you have to you have to kind of weigh and balance what your effective potential risk is. And you could say, look, I, uh, you know, this is a motivated 23-year-old that, you know, they just they've been in college and they gained some weight and they're, you know, they want to lose the weight and they're they're really motivated to get healthy and they're, you know, got a new new fiance and they want to have kids and they want to get, a, you know, there's there's motivation. Then I'll say, look, you, you, the ideal is that we start metformin, you know, 500 twice a day or something like that, whatever we can, you know, whatever sounds amenable with that patient. And we could, we could do that. And in the meantime, we could start you with your diet and exercise plan. We could come off of that if your A1Cs and everything's in, your fasting sugars are all controlled. But if they're not, then we keep going with it. Or we can do this. If you were really motivated and you are adamant you do not want to take the medicine, you could do diet and exercise for three months. We'll recheck it. And if you're better in three months, good. We don't have to go there. So I'll let them t- help make the decision. That way it's their buying into the treatment plan. That's my technique. Some other people would just say, I don't care, you're going on, you're going on metformin. And that's not wrong either because that's not breaching the standard of care. I think the standard of care in both of those. I just have to document the snot out of it. Look, patient educated of potential risks of diabetes being untreated, um, diet and exercise may control it, would like to trial for three months. Patient's decision to do that will not take medicine. Um, we'll hold off for three months. As long as you document it, you're good. That's that's the, the, the part of the the plan too. Is you got to be able to look back at your notes and say, did I really say that, and did I document it, or did I document it well, or is it going to get shredded by the defense att- or uh, plaintiff's attorney? But you got to really get the level of risk is really where it comes down to, and this is with any of the, any liability issue. So your duty. I'll just go through them again real quick. Duty is owed, whether there was a harm, and whether you breached the standard of care. Now, the standard of care is measured by this. Whether a reasonably prudent provider in the same or similar circumstance would do the same thing you did. And in law school, we called it the Poindexter rule. 
Poindexter from uh, Revenge of the Nerds, right? He's the most upstanding citizen that you could ever imagine. He always does the right thing, goes above and beyond. He sees a piece of litter in the road. He goes out and, you know, looks both way ten times, goes out, picks it up, brings it in. You know, any, anything. Holds the door open, puts his coat down over a puddle for a lady. I mean, that, that's, that's the Poindexter rule. So you're held to a high standard. What would the reasonably prudent provider do? I think a reasonably prudent provider would say to a new onset 23-year-old diabetes, you know, yeah, well, you know, if, if you're motivated and you're, you're showing that you really want to do this, you could do it. You can get your A1C from, you know, 6.6 down to 5.5 if you really wanted to do it with diet and exercise. Not a problem. That'd be easy. You shave off a point with diet and exercise. Just cut out the sugary beverages would probably be okay. I wouldn't tell them that, though. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, you got to hit the pavement with your feet. That's what I tell them. So, the, um, sorry, I'm in an intersection, new way here. Come on, buddy. Get the intersection, dude. Oh, there's a pig. Sorry, policeman. That was derogatory. I'm sorry, people. I love police officers. Unless they're giving me a ticket. <laughs> then I don't like them. Um... All right, so that, that's your standard of care stuff and all your liability and how I measure it. But I do it for everything. I, like, I'll, I'll run that analysis in my head. Like, all right, I've got something that's just the hackles on my neck are going up. Um, I've got somebody that maybe is coming in with, um, I don't know, opiates in their system. And they're, you know, they're, they look a little weird, a little off. And, I'll, you know, I, if I suspect that they're on an opiate, the standard of care is that I offer them treatment to have that hard discussion. And that's good care. It, it, it forces you to do good care. It really does. So I'll do the analysis. All right, if this guy goes out on the street and dies, and they saw that, I, that he was here, and, you know, how would they know that I knew that he was potentially, you know, you know, high or, you know, gorked out of his mind on some kind of illicit substance? If there was a positive drug screen that came back from the ER visit that was a day ago, I know about it. Kind of need to talk about that. Uh, you, you can't just say... Oh, uh, he didn't tell me when my visit. Well, you, you had knowledge. Whether it was real knowledge or constructive, it doesn't matter. The court doesn't care. Constructive knowledge is we say that you know because you should have known. We'll construct. We're, we're building it up. It's a fiction. You didn't really know about it, but you should have known about it because you were supposed to have read the ER report. It came to you, into your office, and you signed off. Oh, yeah, I saw it. Well, did you really read it? No, I didn't have time. Well, that's fine, but everything in that ER report, if there's a low potassium and they have a heart attack because you didn't catch a potassium and the ER didn't do it, guess who is potentially on the hook as well? You are. You signed off on that. So that's why you got to read stuff. you got to really pay attention. It takes a lot of time. There's a reason we make the money that we do. It's because we put a lot of energy and work and, and concentration and you've got to keep on it, right? All right, so there's there's standard of care and all that good stuff and how I measure it with, with each each thing. But I do that analysis over and over and over. It's never the same. Even if you have a different 23-year-old diabetic that's that's a new diabetes diagnosis, it's not the same. Because they may have kidney issues. Or they may have hypertension. They may have other comorbidities that require your more attention sooner. So you can't just say, oh, well, okay, okay, well, let's just do the same analysis. It's not, it's the same technique, but it's a different outcome almost every time. That's why lawsuits are expensive and they suck. 
because every analysis is different. You can't just pull it off the shelf and say, oh, here's another strep throat. This is how you treat it. Here's another strep throat. Here's how you treat it. It doesn't work that way. doesn't work that way. All right. The other one I want to go through today is a contract one. And so, you know, I hope that the liability stuff makes sense. I'm trying my best to make it make sense. It is not easy. Tort liability is one of the harder classes in your first year of law school. And it's a whole semester of intention or unintentional torts. So it's basically malpractice is a whole semester and probably about 700 pages of reading. Just for those four rules, those four prongs, three prongs with the, the double and that one last prong. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of distinguishing little nuances here and there. And it, it all comes down to that, doing the analysis over and over again. The, um, the other one I want to go through today is a contract question. It just kind of came into me recently. And um, it's a situation that I think bears discussion and alert to certain people because it is very frustrating to me when I review contracts when, when um, it's obvious to me when I'm reviewing them that the individual is trying to get taken advantage of. And here's the situation. Contract says base salary of 70, 80 grand, whatever it is. So you get a base salary plus a bonus. Oop, deers, there's deers. There's like six of them just ran across the street. Oop, okay, guys, they're gone. You can speed up now. They're big body doe, man. It's a big deer. Um, sorry, that was, that was, I get excited about animals. So here's the, the situation. The bonus structure in your, in your proposed contract says something like this. Contract shall be paid out at an annual of, let's just assume, 75000 So it's a low number. That's a low salary for you. So you're anticipating getting a bonus. With a quarterly bonus structure of 10% or 15% or 30% of, of revenue generated after overhead. All right? So this is frustrating for me because as a provider, I want to know exactly what my overhead is and, and, and how do they prorate that based upon the office. So say you've got three NPs, four uh, physicians, and a crap ton of MAs, and some nurses that bring in some revenue doing nurse visits, and they do other things in the office like Botox and Jack Cash stuff, and you know, so, so what percentage of overhead gets allocated to you. That's a hard thing to figure out and it's really subjective. So if the practice wants to say, well, geez, you know, we're, we're really, we're not doing so great, but you're banging, you're, you're seeing four five, six people an hour and you're making tons of cash for this practice. You might not see a great refund because they'll reallocate or a great bonus because not refund a great bonus because they'll allocate more of the overhead to you. It's subjective. Well, gee, Jeff, we're really, really thankful you're here. You're doing a great job for us. And, you know, what, what we come down to is we'll boil it down to about, you know, 10 bucks more an hour uh, because we have a lot of overhead in our office. And that's, you know, that's none of your control. I don't like my salary being dictated by other people, one, and two, being dictated by other things that are outside of my control, like revenue generated, 
was it revenue generated or revenue income? So you have to really make sure that that's spelled out well as well in the contract. I like clear terms with bonus because bonus implies it's not necessarily guaranteed. If it's additional salary or additional um, payments, uh, those are better words to me than, than bonus. I hate the word bonus because bonus means discretionary. It's up to the discretion of the company that's, that's, that's writing the check. So if I was going to get a salary of $75,000 per year, and then I had some wonky calculation that's subjective to somebody else's interpretation, you can bet your sweet ass I'm not going to sign that deal. I want to know exactly what I'm going to get paid for exactly how much work I need to put in. And you should know, want to know that too. And having discretion to change that on an annual basis is between the two of you. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. We can renegotiate this every year. If you think my value is not worth the value that you paid last year, that's fine. But I also want you to give me six weeks of notice so I can find another job. So that that's kind of where I would go. I would I would try to try to limit the amount of unknowns in my agreement. It's really frustrating when you read these and I'm like, geez, they're trying to bend you over here because if they want to, if they don't really like you and they're kind of like, yeah, you're bringing money in, but we really just don't like you and maybe we just don't click. And it's not even that we don't like you. It's just you're not the right fit for us. They're not going to pay you your bonus. They're going to make it. They're going to incentivize you leaving. And there's nothing you can do about it because it's in the contract that way. And there's no there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees about <coughs> getting the contract. Um, how can you enforce something if you don't know how to enforce it? So you should ask yourself that as you're reading provisions in your own contract. If I don't understand how to, that, where do I put numbers to paper? Rigid, logic, complete logic. This is where the report come from, comes from that tells me this amount of data. And I get a percentage of that data. That's tangible. That would be acceptable. How do you do the reporting? It's kind of like the government doing the unemployment. They just keep changing the calculations on how they do the unemployment to suit their needs. So the, the problem is, is that you could change the calculations. The end number doesn't mean shit. It needs to be a known, calculable quantity so that you can have a target to get to that point. If you don't know what that target is or how to calculate that, I'm cool with taking a lower salary for a period of a couple months until you as the practitioner and the employer figure out the best way to calculate to get you to an end point that is relatively well known. So if you think you're worth 120 or 130, you tell them, look, this is where I'm going to be. If my calculations don't come out to be that, and I'm seeing X amount of patients per day, it is not my responsibility to mandate that they get paid. You get paid. It's somebody else's job to do that. That's not my fault. If you aren't bringing in the the, the billings, if the billings aren't being done properly, if you know, if I'm seeing patients banging them out left and right, left and right, my job is to see patients. Your company's job is to to get paid. That's between you and, the, and the, the insurance companies and the patients and all that. That doesn't concern me. So here's where I want to be. Here's the number of patients I'll see to get that. Can we make this work? That's where I would go. I like number of patients better. 
I mean, you can do CPT codes too. That's fine. RVUs get little, you know, it's fine. You can get there with RVUs as well. But to be honest with you, I think just number of patients is, the, you know, I'll see X number of patients per day. If I meet that goal, this is what it is. In my practice, personally, I have never once turned away a patient. I just don't. If they double book, they double book. I see them both. I'll get to them when I get to them. I might bitch and moan about it. I don't like being double booked all day, but it happens and sometimes you got to do it. The, the problem for me is this. If for some reason, and I'm not saying this is my practice, but if, because I'm busy all the time. If for some reason my practice does not promote me as a provider or the other providers get double booked for some reason and I only get half a schedule for that day, I'll never reach my goal. That's out of my control. I can just be the best provider I can be. Now, maybe it's because I'm a bad fit or maybe I'm a shithead or, you know, some other reason and people just don't want to see me and they want to see the other person. That's fine. But if the, say, for example, here's a good hypothetical. I go to work with a physician. It's just me and the physician and, you know, a couple MAs and office staff. But we're the only two providers. And the providers, you know, I'm doing just as good of a job in that office as the physician, patients you know, seem to like me, that see me, but for some reason there's a stigma that they want to see the physician over the nurse practitioner. And the MAs and the office staff and the and the physician all buy into that and kind of promote that, that philosophy that the physician is better. And because of that, the physician's always busy and you're not. That's out of your control. You can't control that. You're doing the best job you can. They need to change their philosophy and sell you. To, the, to their client base, that you're just as good, that you're just as competent, that if there's a problem or a question, you can reach the physician and we, you, know, you work as a team and that that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. But if, that's, if that hypothetical happens and, and it's out of your control, you shouldn't be penalized for that. You're still showing up to do your job. That's you. You have to look at it from this perspective too. What would I have gotten paid if I went to a practice that would have promoted me? I'd be making one twenty, one thirty, one ten, one fifteen, over a hundred. Because I'd be booming. I'd be seeing tons of patients. I'd be making people happy. They'd be loving on me. And it, just because I'm stuck in this circumstance where you guys don't take the benefit of me doesn't mean that I should get paid less. Does that make sense, guys? It's what your what your value is on the open market, kicking ass. Not what they're willing to pay you. It's what you're worth in the market. Does that that let that sink in? It's what you're worth in the marketplace. Not what some shitheads got you schnookered into thinking that they're gonna pay you, you know, 120, 130 after your bonus, and then they end up taking advantage and you make 75, 80. Or you get a little bonus, you make 90. Just enough to stay, keep you on the hook. I would renegotiate that contract every day of the week. I'd go in and say, look, we're going to have to redo this deal because I'm getting screwed here. You're making money hand over fist and I'm making less than what, what we, we kind of anticipated together. Now, it's nice that they give guidelines. Oh, we, we may pay you up to, we, we anticipate your bonus being total salary with bonus of, you know, 110 or 115 or 120. That's fine. That's nice that they at least recognize that. But the problem is, is that there's no guarantee in a contract like that. Does that make sense, guys? That was one of the contract. That wasn't even really the one I wanted to talk about. There was another one I want to talk about. I think we're getting long. Let me see where time is. 
we're at 35 minutes. Man, that's a long, that's a long show. I'm not going to do the other one right now. It's too long. But um, there, there's more contract issues I want to go through. The next one, just as a teaser, was talking about um, in collaborative states that require a collaborative, making sure that there's some language in your contract that that links your contract for employment to having a collaborative agreement. And I see this all the time. I see it where it's silent. It doesn't say anything about the collaborative agreement. What are the ramifications if you don't have some linkage between your collaborative agreement and your contract for employment? And I'll go through that in another show. And you guys, if I don't remind me, somebody email me, jeff at the mpdude.com. Keep me, keep me apprised of what's going on. I want to hear from you guys. I got tons of contract stuff recently because I'm reviewing contracts for people. So, um, I just got little stuff. I'm never going to divulge a specific instance of who it is or anything like that. So please be advised. These are all hypotheticals to give you things to think about when you're reviewing your contract and the potential pitfalls that you could come across. That's what this is for. This is all to learn. All of us will all get better at this. I promise. If we just all pay attention, kind of, kind of stick to our guns on this stuff. I think we'll, we'll all do better. We'll all have better agreements. We'll all be more respected if you walk in to a, to a negotiation with knowledge and power, they're going to be like, oh crap, this is a smart cookie. I want this guy or this gal. I want him. I want this person here. They, they're paying attention. They're not just signing this contract. It's just a piece of garbage. They're like, wow, okay, they're really paying attention. This, that means they're going to pay attention with my patients too. I want them. So I think that's a good thing when you go back with some, some terms and change things and say, look, eh, this doesn't make a lot of sense here. Let's fix that. I think that they'll like that, in my opinion. So that being said, guys, I want to hear from you. I want to know what's bugging you. Email me, jeff at the npdude.com. You can catch me on Facebook. Send me a PM there as well. Don't forget to uh, share the show, like the show, tell your friends, give some iTunes ratings, give ratings on Facebook, use the Amazon affiliate link and buy some t-shirts. This is all the stuff you guys need to be doing to help support the show, right? I appreciate you guys. I want you to be safe, be smart, and we'll talk soon.